Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And I'm Riley. And there you go. There's our guest, Riley. This is Marvel <laughs> Reread Club. If you have been listening in order, as we really think that you should, that's just the way you listen to this podcast. You, you, <laughs> you, don't, you don't start at the most recent one and go backwards. You know that our guest in this episode as well is Riley Brown, who is known for a number of things. Actually, one thing you didn't mention, uh, Riley, am I mistaken or did you co-create Bob, Agent of Hydra? I did. Yeah. Me yes. and Fabian in uh, the Cable and Deadpool days. Yeah. Who then showed up in the first Deadpool movie, right? Yes, which was an awesome surprise. I was not expecting to see him show up, but like, man, that was great. That's wonderful. I sometimes talk about how I play the card game Legendary, which is a Marvel-themed deck-building card game. Bob, Agent of Hydra, was added as a character in the Deadpool expansion. Oh, so, really? Oh, yeah, I don't think yeah. I knew that. What are his stats? I I don't I'd have to have him in front okay. of me. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, but it's a whole set of four separate cards and multiple ones of some of them. Yeah. But yeah, he's I, I uh, hope, I hope whatever the stats are, it's like almost worse to have him in your hand than to just not have any card at all. <laughs> <laughs> they, they try not to make it quite like that. But yeah, it, it, it's gonna, I'll send you some information about him later. Sure. <laughs> right. So, Matt, I believe that you were going to get the honor of doing this issue of Fantastic Four. This is one of the most famous issues of all time, Fantastic Four, number 49, If This Be Doomsday, where we finally get a whole issue devoted to Galactus and the Silver Surfer. It is great. I was writing up my notes and I said, oh, this is a much homaged cover. And I found out that homaged is not a word. Apparently, in the comic book world, we say the verb homage a lot or past tense homaged. But uh, apparently that's not actually a word. That's just something that we comic book people made up. Wait, but, so what, what would the word be? <laughs> I think you paid Did, homage to something. Oh, okay. Okay, the but, pain uh, would be the verb. But this is English. Right. If you <laughs> said it, it's a word. Yeah, you could verb anything. <laughs> and apparently we have verbed homage. This is a cover that it will be imitated quite a bit. We have Galactus with his hands going down at the Fantastic Four with little ray beams shooting out and Silver Surfer zipping around. There will even, I think, be a Doctor Who book that will uh, be based <laughs> on this comic. We jump into the issue uh, written in the masterful manner of Stanley, illustrated in the magnificent mode of Jack Kirby, inked in the majestic mood of Joe Sinat, and indeed, it is gorgeous inking, lettered in the nick of time by Sam Rosen. I think we cut out of last issue that Reed had a five o'clock shadow, but it's very odd to have this famous issue with Reed uh, sporting his five o'clock shadow here. We have the first splash page of the Fantastic Four looking up, and then the second page is also a splash page, which is a legendary page of Galactus still in his suns out, guns out, bare arms and legs. <laughs> yeah, and he's got the short shorts on. He's looking good. <laughs> so I would say that's more of a mini skirt than short shorts. Well, that, but, uh, yeah, no, he's got the skirt. I guess I was assuming he's got short shorts on underneath it. But the point is, we're seeing a lot of leg here. <laughs> mighty, mighty bold of you to assume he's wearing <laughs> underneath. His, his, uh, I think those are supposed to look like a Roman soldier's get up down there. But yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. <laughs> and once again, with a big G on his chest, uh, he would presumably not speak English. So he's talking to the watcher here. So. Stands for hope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like like the S on Superman's chest. Uh, so then we have uh, Watcher talking to Galactus while they're sort of ignoring the Fantastic Four who are. And, and, we, and I gotta say, the Watcher's definitely put on a few pounds in this issue. <laughs> Well, that is a recurring theme on this podcast, that the Watcher is always off-model. I don't know. As an artist yourself, have you ever noticed that there are certain Marvel characters, like Puppet Master, like the Watcher, who there's never a standard model for? And even in every single issue of What If, the Watcher was drawn differently. There are. I think that happens a lot when a character like the Watcher was drawn. He's so memorable and has such a distinct look when he first showed up. But it's also so much in Jack Kirby's style that I think other people try to capture something about that and don't always know how to do it in their style. Yeah. Um, now, of course, Kirby has no excuse for drawing him so often. <laughs> 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 he knows what he's doing. Uh, and this issue, 
in particular, I feel like this is the watcher as most human looking. Like he just looks like a bald, overweight man. Whereas usually yeah. he looks like an alien with an extra large head. So I don't know what exactly Kirby was trying to go for or why he decided to change him from the earlier appearances. Um, yeah. But it's interesting. <laughs> and it's, you know, for such an iconic issue, it's like that time you got the crazy haircut right before your sister's wedding. And so all the pictures <laughs> have you with a weird haircut. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, my daughter, it's her senior year of high school, and she went and got a haircut right before getting her senior pictures taken. And the haircut was, in her mind, a disaster. Oh, no. Like, she's just, she was freaking out. Oh, man. Uh, we, we no, no one's going to recognize her in the yearbook. <laughs> right, exactly. So then Thing is trying to get Galactus' attention, punches him. Galactus then gains to throw down a gas bomb on him. Absolutely fantastic on page four, where Mr. Fantastic has to wrap up Ben in a roll in a little burrito and roll away <laughs> with him. And burrito read on the third panel of page four is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no argument there. No notes. <laughs> they all get dinged up in a quick fight and they decide, let's go down and take baths and shave. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going like, Johnny is like, what's with you guys? Galactus is planning on tearing our planet apart and you're making like a TV shaving commercial. And Ben's like, relax, Johnny. We're just trying to cook up a plan. This is Reed thinking, oh, I have a feeling this is going to be a famous issue. I got to get rid of this five o'clock shadow. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I've already been in some of the photos looking terrible. I need to go ahead and clean myself up. Then Reed thinks, no harm in tidying up while we're thinking as their lad. You could use a shower yourself. So then we get another huge coincidence this month. Of all the apartments in New York City that the Silver Surfer could have landed on, he landed on Alicia Masters' apartment. Uh, She apparently (laughs) has a skylight we've never seen before. He goes and falls into her apartment. Now, this coincidence I'm willing to accept. It's especially a huge coincidence because this is not the only time recently that the Fantastic Four have been fighting somebody who has suddenly ended up at Alicia's apartment, which (laughs) is not seen as being right next to the Baxter building at all. It's, you know, many blocks away. But then we get one of the all-time great scenes in Marvel Comics history. The Silver Surfer has his humanity awakened by Alicia Masters, and Lee is absolutely killing it here. Lee just falls in love with Silver Surfer and has always liked Alicia Masters and writes just an absolutely amazing conversation between the two of them. I've never heard anyone speak so, so strangely, and yet there's a certain nobility in your voice. Nobility, the word has no meaning to me. You do not see, are all Earthlings thus afflicted? Why, no, of course not. Then you really are not of this planet. It's incredible. She introduces him to the concept of being human. Now, one big issue in this comic that will be retconned over and over again, back and forth over the years, is they imply a few places in this issue that Galactus has never destroyed a planet with people on it before. Yeah, that was weird. And even within the same issue, I think they contradict themselves on that. They do. Where do they say that? I There's like, I think two different places where they imply like, oh, yes, yes, you've destroyed all these planets, but you've never destroyed a planet with people on it before. Okay. Uh, page three, panel two from off panel. The Watcher is saying, but the others were dead worlds. No harm was done. There are billions of living beings here on Earth, which also just goes ahead and contradicts the whole thing we saw last issue with the whole Skrull Empire literally doing a blackout for the entire solar system so that he didn't see them. Like, clearly, they know what's up. Yeah, maybe the Watcher's not watching too carefully. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it'll be very clear later how many people they've killed, but also how long they've been at it, how long the Silver Surfer was Herald of Galactus, because once Silver Surfer gets his own book, he's going to go back home to his girlfriend, who will still be a young, fetching young lass, <laughs> and implying <laughs> he was only with Galactus for a couple of years. That is totally weird. I, I get the feeling they just never paid attention. Like, yeah, they're just like, yeah, it's a planet. can <laughs> support life, because later on, the next scene with Surfer and Alicia, I think, is even better than this one. Um, yeah, because these two together are great. This is really like one of the highlights of the issue. I think I was wanted to ask a question that I failed to ask last week. Is the Silver Surfer cool? Like a guy riding around space on a surfboard? Is that like a really really cool thing? Because in some ways that's really cool, and in some ways that's really lame. And I've always gone back and forth about whether the fundamental visual of the Silver Surfer is really cool or too silly. Okay, when I was a kid. 
And I, I first started reading comics, or started reading Marvel comics, at least, in the 90s. And I was mostly reading Spider-Man and X-Men, and most of the other characters I learned about through the trading cards. And to me, the Silver Surfer and Galactus, both of them, were just total jokes. Like, I was like, surely no one takes these characters seriously. Like, like, but I had friends like, no, nah, Silver Surfer's awesome. And I was like, I don't see how he could possibly be awesome. Then, eventually, I got a collection of comics that had this story arc in it. And when I see how they first show up and read the story and get them in context, I'm like, oh, man, these are the coolest characters ever. So as far as is he cool or not? Yeah, he owns it. He makes it cool. Not everyone could pull off that shtick, but Norrin, whatever the hell his name is, (laughs) Silver Surfer somehow somehow manages it. So you're saying is Norrin is rad. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, Steve, what about you? Do you think that this is an inherently cool design or an inherently lame design? I think it's an inherently cool design. I think that it was able to be pulled off once. I think that <laughs> both Kirby and other folks have tried to recreate that particular lightning in a bottle and have failed to do so. So, because well, right, Kirby later had a character at DC called the Black Racer who would ski around the universe. Right. And yeah. it was seemed like a lame attempt to recreate the Silver Surfer. Yes, and that that's exactly what I was thinking about. And then later in, like, I think the Rich Buckler issues of Fantastic Four, there was a character called Gard, G-A-A-R-D, who was basically a, a hockey goalie. Yeah. Uh, you know, complete with a hockey stick and his pads and stuff like that. And it's just like, yeah, guys, just the Silver Surfer was a one-time flash of brilliance. Well, just don't- well, the, <laughs> the thing with the Silver Surfer is that like when you first see him, he's this ridiculous guy who's surfboarding in outer space. That makes no sense. But once you read the story, you immediately forget the concept that he's surfing because he's so stoic. He's not acting like a surfer in any way. And his presence is ominous. And the surfboard is just like how he gets around. It's just a geometric shape he's like standing on that can take him faster than light from one planet to another. And you forget the whole surfing aspect. That just becomes part of his name. So but I think that there was an idea that surfers had sort of a mystic feeling to them. There was an idea that, you know, there were philosophical surfers in the mid-60s who would go like, oh, I'm communing with the big something um, as I... <laughs> I think that there was a little bit of an idea that he was a surfer. Not obviously a cool radical dude type surfer, but that he was a serious surfer who was, you know, surfing the spaceways. Well, anyway... But I just mean as far as a character design, a character concept that's able to transcend in ways that other characters of a similar type haven't been able to. Yeah. If he was wearing a bathing suit, he would not work. If he had like long curly hair, it would not work. Like he's this shiny, stoic totem kind of, you know, he's just like a statue that moves through space. And that like that makes him cool. Definitely one of my all-time favorite characters. When I downloaded every Marvel comic ever, one of the only characters who I said I'm going to read every single comic about this guy is the Silver Surfer. He may be the Uh, only Marvel character who I've read every single issue Marvel has ever published about him in all six years of Marvel comics. So he is one of my all-time favorite characters. Anyway, let's go ahead and zip through the rest of this issue. They find out what it will look like when Galactus eats a planet. It's not going to be good. They have a little preview of what will be left of the Earth. We have more of Alicia and Silver Surfer as This is the second scene with Alicia and Silver Surfer. Hmm. I love this panel on the uh, bottom left corner of page 11. Like, he's just about to snuff her out. Like, he's like, ah, screw this chick. And he's like about to just like zap her point blank in the face. And he's like, or maybe I won't. (laughs) Maybe there is something to this humanity stuff. Yeah. And, And that's Sinnott just as much as it is Kirby there spotting a lot more blacks in the usually very shiny and bright looking Silver Surfer, but just sort of creating a more of an ominous, heavy feel yeah. to what's going on there. Yeah. Also, I love how as the Fantastic Four are hearing about uh, Galactus's whole process of destroying a planet, which is cool to see that, but then to immediately see Silver Surfer doing the exact same thing to the food and everything on the table that <laughs> Alicia has set for him. Um, So it's kind of interesting that it's sort of like, oh, Silver Surfer is the same as Galactus, just smaller and on a smaller scale. Yeah. Yeah. So then Fantastic Four try to stop Galactus' plan. They rip up his machinery. He then sends a robot after him called the Punisher. 
So we have the first Marvel Punisher, who is this weird, short-looking robot. I'm not a big fan of this robot design. One I of the reasons love this guy. <laughs> I don't like this robot design is the way he's colored. Looks like he's wearing shorts and a long sleeve shirt. I, never cool. He's got like a grumpy baby face on. <laughs> when his arms just like spin around really fast, like it's insane. <laughs> it is really funny. Meanwhile. Watcher has planned for Johnny to go to Glax's home planet, which is a huge figure shaped spaceship, which is awesome. On page 16, other artists will get a chance to draw this over the years and also do a good job with it. People, I think, always love getting a chance to draw this amazing world-sized ship. The Fantastic Three who are left on the planet fight the Punisher, who is, you know, they eventually realize it's just a nuisance that will eventually go away. And <laughs> well, that's the craziness of him. He just shows up. Takes the thing's butt and then just goes home. Like, that's it. <laughs> the Silver Surfer then decides to turn on Galactus, but then the Watcher is like, wait, I had this whole plan for Johnny to defeat Galactus, and now Silver Surfer is going to turn on him, which should be good, but it's actually going to be bad, which I never like. I never like when there's plotting where there's two things that could help the hero and they're going to cancel each other out. And I'm like, you should be more linear than that. But that is the end of the issue. Obviously, one of the all-time great issues, all-time great issue for Kirby, all-time great issue for Lee. Lee has found one of his favorite characters in Silver Surfer. And indeed, when we were first reading comics in the early 80s, the only comics Lee was scripting were Silver Surfer comics. Lee sort of had a rule that if they did any Silver Surfer comics, Lee himself got to come back and script them. So when John Byrne did a one-shot Silver Surfer comic, Lee came back and scripted it. And then eventually when Mobius, none other than the great Sean Chirot, Mobius came back and did two issues of Silver Surfer for Marvel. They got Lee to script those as well. Lee has found his ultimate happy place in scripting Silver <laughs> Surfer, and we just have an amazing issue. A couple of observations that I had along the way that I didn't want to interrupt with, you know, with the coincidence of him collapsing in Alicia's building. But there are a lot of coincidences with both Alicia and with Jane Foster, Like with Jane Foster, there always just happens to be something where it's like, oh, you know, Thor just happened to be flying by and I'm the one who happened to see him or, oh, I just happened to be kidnapped and this thing happened. And meanwhile, Alicia, when they're fighting with Dragon Man, they accidentally crash into her apartment. Now, at this point, Circle Surfer comes in. I want them to get mixed up one of these days. One of them to have the other one's coincidence happen to them. (laughs) (laughs) Crashes on Jane Foster's. Right. um, office or whatever (laughs) exactly or or the ox instead of kidnapping karen page kidnaps alicia masters or something like that exactly there you go uh so then also on page 12 when the citizens of new york are all looking up in horror at what's going on there is one particular dude in a green overcoat who looks like he's about to start looking around for his nearest telephone booth. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Okay, so it's not just me then. No. I really do find it odd just how much the Punisher changed from his first appearance. I mean, you know, this is just... <laughs> have, so they ever done the retcon? have they ever done the retcon where we learned that that is the original Frank Castle? Like that... <laughs> He had a weird month where he got kidnapped by Galactus and turned into a little robot. (laughs) This Punisher robot does show up again, and I think he does eventually get a chance to fight Frank Castle. I think they did eventually do a Punisher versus Punisher issue. (laughs) Right. Yeah, so I believe we have reached that point when we need to move on and do some other stuff. I I would just point out there is a letter from Dave Cockrum, who is an excellent excellent letter writer, even though he will not be a writer later on. He will be an artist, but uh, there is another good letter from Dave Cockrum not our first fun we've had. Do you have good things to say or is he complaining? <laughs> well, he says, of course, you have to develop this romance between Johnny and Crystal. If she's an inhuman, where do I join? <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it is funny how many people who go on to be both writers and artists for Marvel had letters printed yeah. in these early Silver Age days. And also, Matt has pointed out George R. Martin uh, wrote a letter. Yeah, so it, it it really is interesting. They were the ones who got picked out, and who knows if that was what just kept them going, or how much of it was they just had the most passionate, thoughtful letters. But one way or the other, it's it's really interesting to find I, how many. I I had a letter printed in a X Men comic once. Really? Oh, cool. Yeah, when I was in college, it was totally bizarre to like 
see it in there, but it was pretty cool. Oh, wow. Did you have plans at that point to become a Marvel artist? Did you know that was your career path by that point? I was going to school for illustration and I was drawing comics in my spare time all the time. So it was definitely yeah. the plan. Cool. What what issue number was it? Do you remember? I don't remember the issue number. I think it was Uncanny X-Men and the cover was drawn by Alan Davis and it's Sunfire Fighting Rogue, I believe. Cool. Alan right. Davis is my favorite. From like 1999. Look that up. And I'll be in the back. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, so I believe we're moving on to Strange Tales next. To free a brain slave. We're in the middle of a storyline where Mentallo and the Fixer have teamed up, and they will be a duo that will work together off and on through the years. They have teamed up to infiltrate S.H.I.E.L.D., where Mentallo used to be an agent. They have kidnapped Nick Fury and put some kind of mask on him that makes him a brain slave to uh, Mentallo. Luckily, you know, his face is completely covered up, but luckily he has his name on his PJs. So it says Nick Fury there on his breast. Yes, yes. Very important. Uh, So in the credits, this is interesting. Story Stanley, Art Jack Kirby with an assist by Howard Purcell inking Mickey DeMeo. It was really Mike Esposito. Lettering Artie Simak. About two thirds of the way through this story, it clearly is not Kirby. Like, it's like he handed it off to this Howard Purcell guy because something happened. It just looks very clearly like we're not watching Kirby stuff anymore. The main sort of shield central force, you know, with Dum Dum Dugan and Gabe Jones are heading off to try to rescue Nick Fury. And they've got all sorts of different crazy, awesome gear. Uh, There's a little flying saucer thing that I think that they had taken from Hydra at one point. Then they get on this little rocket subway, and then they get to where Tony Stark is directing everybody in Nick Fury's absence while he's inventing all of this machinery. And we just have fantastic Kirby tech uh, all the way through this. We see, once again, our three ESP agents who are working to try to find out where the bad guys are. Mentallo and Fixer, they set up this thing with a whole H-bomb that they handcuff Nick Fury to. And then only after they get that do they take off the mask. And they're like, okay, you are literally handcuffed to a hydrogen bomb. So you got to do what we tell you to do. And of course, this is Nick Fury. That's not what's going to happen. Now that they took that mask off, the espers can now hear his thoughts. And he's sing- it, singing in his head the uh, the old, I believe, World War One song, wasn't it? Johnny, get your gun. Yeah. So they're like, oh, that's him. Now we can find him. So Mentallo uh, and Fixer clearly messed up here. Uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. is able to find them, go ahead and incapacitate the two of them. By this point, on page seven, I do not know that we've got Kirby at that point. Definitely by page nine, we don't. So I don't know what exactly happened there. But one way or the other, there is a some kind of a brain blast thing that's being used to knock out Mentallo because he's very sensitive to that stuff. But it's hitting both Nick Fury and the Fixer as well in the middle of all of this. But Nick Fury is able to tough it out until uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. is able to make it in there and destroy the H-bomb. Now, they destroy the H-bomb by disintegrating it into a mountain of powder right in front of Nick Fury's face that looks like the powder of cocaine in Scarface. Fortunately, there's nothing else to worry about with this big pile of powdered uranium and or plutonium along with you know, whatever. The green smoke coming off of it. Yes, yes. It's all safe now. <laughs> Don't worry. It was all wrapped up in asbestos. It should yeah. be fine. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, but certainly by the bottom of page nine, look at those two panels at the bottom of page nine and tell me if that's Jack Kirby or Howard Purcell or whatever the guy's name is. Yeah. I, the top ones look less like Kirby to me. Like that bald guy and the guy with the beard are definitely not drawn by Kirby. Or at least yeah. their faces aren't. I don't know. So, about yeah, that. there's something weird going on there, and I don't know what happened with it. Yeah, but we get deadlines, some- dude. It's called deadlines. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, oh, believe me. I, I've, I've, I've been there. <laughs> no, I've, I've handed off some stuff to people, and I've had stuff handed <laughs> off to me. I, I know how it is. So uh, we see some more um, shield tech. Some shield tech is more impressive than other shield tech here. We've got just these little body skateboard-looking things with just big pendulums that go back and forth that are, you know, supposed to draw the fire of people. But one way or the other, 
as soon as Fury has been rescued and the mental stuff has been turned off, he goes right back to giving orders and belittling everybody. And they're like, ah, it's good to have him back, man. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, that is it for that particular storyline. And then we're just left with a little teaser for what's happening next. And there is a bomb of some sort blows up one of the planes that's flying off of the helicarrier and we don't know what it is but uh we see that next issue is something called the druid it's fun it's a nice wrap up to the mentalo and fixer storyline i do miss that we sort of lost the kirby craziness about two-thirds of the way through that story but we did get a lot of good stuff before that yeah, it's a fun little wrap-up. Yeah, I think you can't complain much about this issue. There's lots of great Kirby art in it, even if he didn't draw every page. And the machine on page three, that it takes up a full splash page, is just amazing and bizarre. Oh, yeah. I think it's just been great having this totally unexpected Lee Kirby mental fixer storyline that was shoehorned in here between the Hydra storyline and the Druid storyline. Unfortunately, we're about to get Don Heck on the book for several issues, but then Jim Stranko comes. But I've really enjoyed this Mental Fixer storyline with some actual full Kirby artwork. It's been fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So Doctor Strange, With None Beside Me, edited and rehashed by Stan Lee, written and rewritten by Roy Thomas, plotted and drawn by Steve Ditko, lettered and blotted by Artie Simek. So I believe this is the first Roy Thomas scripting on one of the Marvel superhero books. Is that not correct? There was a book that had like four writers on it and he was one of them. Right. Right. Yes. But this is a huge step forward for Roy Thomas. Now, Stan Lee has really loved scripting this book, even though Stan Lee stepped away from the potting and it's just been Steve Ditko potting and drawing and inking the book for a long time. But Stan Lee will never script this book again. He is gone from scripting and it is going to be Roy Thomas' issue. And then a very young Denny O'Neill takes over, I think, with next issue. (laughs) Yes, which which blew me away when I first saw it. I'm like, Denny (laughs) O'Neill? What? But this is very much trial by fire for Roy Thomas here, because this is one of the hardest books to script. And it's really a floridly written book. I think that Roy Thomas does an excellent job here. I kept forgetting it wasn't Lee. And yeah. every time I would then go back and look at the splash page, I'm like, oh, right, this was Thomas. This completely reads like a Lee scripted issue to me. You got plenty of those brilliant by the staggering vapors of Valtor lines. Yes. You know? So we had about a 12 issue epic storyline with Doctor Strange battling Dormammu and Baron Mordo that just had all sorts of reversals and all sorts of international travel and interdimensional travel and all sorts of stuff. And then it more or less wrapped up, but it kind of kept going. And that's where we are right now. So some of Baron Mordo's loyalists are still keeping up the pressure on Doctor Strange. And he has at this point been encased in a mask and gloves that keep him from doing any of his spells. I have have to say, this was a really weird chapter of a story to just jump in on. And I was like, (laughs) what? Like, how did he get in this situation? What is happening? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I can imagine jumping in in the (laughs) middle of this one would be a little bit odd. But uh, so he can't cast any magic spells. His body is basically just a liability to him at the moment. And his cloak of levitation and his amulet have both been stolen by these other mystical folks. And so he is in a really bad spot. His uh, ectoplasmic self can still go around and do its own thing. But his body and his ectoplasmic self, basically only one of them should be able to do stuff at a time. Right. So he's trying to find a place to stash his body. So he finds a water tower and stashes his body in this extremely cold water, which doesn't seem like the best idea, but I guess it's the only (laughs) thing that's available to him. He jumps into the water and he thinks to himself, "Ugh, this water is cold below freezing. Can I survive it for long? And um, (laughs) no. Right. And so, okay. Yes, I know he just jumped in. It's super shockingly cold. That's a thought that you might have when you go in there like, oh, my God, this is colder than ice. But if it were super cold water, that would be very, very bad news Uh, because water can be colder than ice. But yeah. anyway, so he dumps his body there and hopes that I guess that he can hook it into where it won't drown. But I guess the cold temperature is going to keep it, you know, from 
I don't know. Anyway, one way or the other, he then heads out in his ectoplasmic form to find that he is still being sought out by everyone. He can't do much without his body, but he can still control his mystical items. And so he is going around and trying to find where his cloak of levitation and his amulet is so that he can go and take control of those in the physical world and extricate himself somehow with that. So on page three, there's a great cutaway of we're seeing the building from the side and we're seeing the multiple rooms in the building as Dr. Strange's form is passing through them and there's a stairway. And anyway, I love, love the first panel of page three. This is a question I had when I was looking at this. Is he just going into random buildings? Because it seems No, he knows where the he knows where his stuff is. Well, no, because he's he finds it. It's in the panel four of page three. Like he's like, oh, it's in the adjacent building. So he starts off in the wrong building. But I'm just wondering, is the first building also one of Mordo's henchmen's buildings? Because if it's not, their decorations <laughs> are wild. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's a very good point. Um, no, I, I I think that they are. I think that he just didn't realize that the adjacent building was also owned by mystic sorcerer types. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that's that's that what I'm make, thinking. That's sort of what I assumed it would have to be, but. <laughs> Who knows? It's New York. Yes. So it is New York. That is true. So uh, he's able to find his cloak of levitation that is being studied by Caecilius. So these three sorcerer types all split up his stuff in order to figure out how he does what he does and then how they can use what he uses. So Caecilius had the cloak of levitation. Strange is able to take over the cloak of levitation, have it tie up Caecilius, and then he is able to use his uh, ectoplasmic self to like hypnotize Caecilius, which he will use in a minute. Great whole sequence on page four with the cloak having a life of its own as it it tracks down Caecilius and then great panel four of it wrapping him up and smothering him. And, you know, it's, much easier for Scott Derrickson in the Doctor Strange movies to use CGI to make the cloak come to life. But Dicko did not need CGI. Dicko is able to give the cloak so much personality as it stalks this guy and smothers him here. Yeah, Ditko just makes that look so easy. uh, that's not easy folks (laughs) so anyway with Caecilius wrapped up Doctor Strange then goes back to reclaim his body only to find that his body isn't there anymore which is bad news so the female sorcerer who was one of the trio who was taking his stuff has retrieved his body and is then you know thinking oh he's got to return for this so he's going to come back and I can get him then but Doctor Strange sends the hypnotized Caecilius flying in her window using the cloak of levitation and is basically like having me, hey, look, I've done it. I've got the cape, hey, you know, but that's basically just to distract her, but it doesn't work. So she finds him, she traps him, and she's like, here's your amulet. Basically, you need to show me how this works, more or less. (laughs) And that was a really bad idea on her part because he is then able to control the amulet and uh, have the eye of Agamotto go and uh, hypnotize her uh, in many ways. So now at this point, he has control over both her and Caecilius. So then the third mystic person, known as the demon, is the last one who is still free. But then they all end up having to get into this big battle with Doctor Strange controlling his two mystical objects, but not his own body and using all sorts of spells. And once again, Ditko is just so great with this. On page eight, panel three, uh, we've seen Ditko pull this a couple of different times where a mystical person, whether it's Doctor Strange or someone else, has their hands hands are creating these little circles of energy and then they're both coming together to form this other little protective disc barrier from something you know he's just so good at making these magic battles look so action-packed so in the end dr strange is able to uh, control them so that they will take the mask and the gloves off of him he's able to reunite with his own body and then dr strange casts a spell on these three folks and says, when you awaken, you will remember nothing of black magic. Thus, may your future lives redeem your past deeds. And so they're going to come to in a sorcerer's home (laughs) filled with sorcerer's stuff 
presumably they've been doing nothing but sorcerer stuff for the last few decades, maybe. And so they're just going to be like, why do I live in this weird place? And do I like have a job or something? Like, what am I supposed to do tomorrow? (laughs) But it's like, nope, done and dusted, problem solved. Yeah. (laughs) And as Matt has pointed out, Roger Stern and Paul Smith go back and mine a lot of this stuff for future storylines in the 80s. And this whole storyline is revisited with these characters here, uh, drawn by Paul Smith, which is quite nice. So yeah, a nice introduction of Roy Thomas to this world. There are a few places where I'm like, oh, okay, I can see that's Roy and not Stan, but not many. Steve Ditko, you can argue that he's really not putting his all into Spider-Man from this point on. And you can make some arguments back and forth that he's still got some moments left, but he still seems to be just completely giving it his all here in Doctor Strange. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, I I noticed that too. Like I thought that the Spider-Man issue was pretty weak and I was kind of like, oh man, I wonder if he's just phoning it in with the Doctor Strange. But this one, this is all cylinders, man. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Riley, have you ever had a chance to draw Doctor Strange? Have you ever had to do all this mystic stuff? Uh, I've drawn him a little bit, like as cameos in various comics. Yeah. He's a fun character. I haven't got to draw just, him too much, but you know, you get to draw the big collar and everything, so that's fun. Awesome. Great. With Doctor Strange, so we have our first wrap-up of an issue in 14 months. <laughs> and, uh, we've had 14 <laughs> straight issues of cliffhangers in Doctor Strange, but uh, things are things are pretty much wrapped up at the end of this issue, and it's like, okay, woo, finally. So, <laughs> Real quick, how much longer is Ditko on Doctor Strange after this? I think he's got three more issues, uh, okay. three or four. So the same as Spider-Man, he left them both yeah. at the same time. Yeah, he left them both at the same time. So, yes, yeah, so let's go ahead and do Tales of Suspense featuring Iron Man Captain America. The cover is devoted just to Captain America, the gladiator, the girl in the glory. It's got Romita drawing Batroc versus Captain America. Last episode of this podcast, Steve, you said you did not like Romita's Batroc, but let's not jump into that yet because the book first begins with an Iron Man story. So let's go ahead and do that. Here lies hidden the unspeakable Ultimo, tenderly written by Stan Lee, lovingly penciled by Adam Austin, who is, of course, Gene Cohen, gently delineated by Gary Michaels, who is, of course, Jack Abel, finally lettered by Sam Rosen. Riley, if you were reading these comics and you didn't know that Adam Austin was Gene Cohen, did you notice that this was the same artist as Submariner? And did you think, hey, this looks really different? I didn't compare the two and I didn't read them back to back. I read this one first. And so then when I saw the other one, I was like, oh, there's that guy again. He must have done a lot of Marvel stuff. Like, you know, it's just funny. I never heard of him. So you did not spot him as Gene Cullen in this one either? Uh, I've only read so much Gene Cullen stuff, so I didn't notice. It sounds like you basically got into Marvel Comics about a decade after us. So probably right around the time that Gene Cullen was not really doing as much, it sounds like. Like Like for me, he's always been back issues. I've read some of his comics, but... Never too many. You never did Tomb of Dracula. You never did the... uh... No, I've seen it. And it's like, that's what I know. I was like, oh man, this guy is awesome. Yeah. Oh, I think Batman. He did a bunch of Batman, right? Yeah. He did a lot of Batman. I probably know mostly from Batman than from other things. Okay. Jerry Conway era of Batman. So here I was hitting the unspeakable ultimate. We have Adam Austin, Gene Cullen looking a lot more like Gene Cullen under Jack Abel's pen. Yeah. Finally, they wrap up the freak storyline where the freak is turned back into Heavy Hogan. And as I suspected, he gets amnesia. So that deals with the fact that he had figured out Tony Stark's secret identity. Then Tony Stark wakes him up. He's like, I don't even remember who I am, which is good. Senator Bird busts in. And Senator Bird is driving off with Tony. But then, I don't know. What do you guys think of this three-panel sequence on page eight? I think it's very colony where a UFO comes by and zaps the car. Mm-hmm. And it looks like he zaps away the whole car. But then we later find out that the car is actually unaffected and it's just that Tony Stark has been taken out of it. What do you guys think of that three panel sequence? I think it's cool. It's weird that that's a whole page, but it's uh, it has very weird it, pacing in all of his books. It's and, very dramatic. Like making it the full page. Definitely. It's like dramatic. It's like, whoa, something major is happening. Yeah. But it's kind of like, why is the introduction of the Mandarin or something? Not the big, you know, not, it's not a splash page, but. It's a lot of space for a car just disappearing. Yeah, yeah. we've been finding that Gene Colan in this time period <laughs> really had some odd choices for where to put emphasis of storytelling, whether that's a splash page or a page like this. And it just always seems to be like, really? That's the one you chose? <laughs> I mean, this page 
this looks like a deadline thing to me. I mean, honestly, he's like, uh, I'm going to draw a car once. I'm going to trace half of it. And there's no background. (laughs) (laughs) There's another panel. There's not even anything like, who knows? There might've been a whole other scene on that page. He's like, I'm not drawing that. I'm (laughs) pretending to be a whole other person here because I'm working at the other company. So, right. So then we got to China where we have the Mandarin. Of course, the Mandarin just like Galactus. The Mandarin has a big M on his chest, even though he does not speak English. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. I don't know why that's funnier than with Galactus. I guess because <laughs> like we know Chinese. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it would have been hard to do Galactus in his actual native language, but we could have done an actual Chinese character for Mandarin. Mandarin was trying to kidnap Iron Man, but he couldn't, so he's kidnap Tony Stark as second best. He does not realize they're the same person. <laughs> he knocks Tony Stark's briefcase out of his hand. It goes flying out the window of the castle. There is no glass in these windows. The <laughs> moat is directly outside the window. We've talked before about how moats were not actually directly outside windows. And, you could uh, just say the window is open. You don't have to say there's no <laughs> glass. I mean, maybe we just don't see the glass. <laughs> yeah, he, he needed a breeze. And then he says he is going to make Ultimo come to life. We see a giant person rising out of a volcano. We see the attache case at the bottom of the murky moat. And we have Tony Stark in trouble. And that is where the issue ends. I think this is a perfectly fine issue. Mandarin is always a good villain. It's very good to get the Happy Hogan storyline finished up. We get Tony Stark out of the frying pan into the fire. That's all we need out of an issue. I like it. I do think we're seeing a lot more of what makes colon colon in this issue. And, you know, Riley, I think we mentioned earlier in this thing that, you know, Matt and I's introduction to comics and to Marvel Comics was Gene Colon. So we yeah. have a we probably have a bit of a uh, myopic view of, yeah. <laughs> of how this goes. But um, I'm not sure if I like or dislike the way that Gene Colon is doing the Mandarin's face. How much is that more racist or less racist than, <laughs> than we usually get for the Mandarin? I, I can't quite I can't quite make up my mind. <laughs> I don't know if it's I don't know if it's more racist or less racist, but I can say it is too racist. Still racist. <laughs> so may or may not be more than usual, but still too much. Okay, Riley, so on page ten where they have the arrows pointing you where your eye is supposed to look. Oh yeah. What's your take on that? I you know, I feel like it's just experimenting. Like now in the 21st century, we kind of know how to do this type of page layout without needing the arrows. Like here, I feel like he was like, oh, I'm going to try it this way. It's like, ah, it's sort of confusing which panel comes first. Let's make some arrows. You know, yeah. Nowadays, you could not get away with doing arrows. Like you have to know how it works. But also, we don't have the benefit of decades of artists like Gene Cullen kind of paving the way for us. Uh, Here's another thing on page 10 that I want to get your take on, because this bothers me more than it seems to bother Matt. Uh, Uh, The panel border that splits the top two panels, you follow that down, and then halfway down the page, it takes a half gutter width jog to the right and then continues down. This really bugs me because there's nothing going on in those two panels on the left, middle and bottom that couldn't have just had that thing go down at the same well, same line. That that is absolutely horrific. And, and like yeah, they could have <laughs> straightened that out. But I think that's part of the arrow thing. I think they were like if we make it straight down, it's totally confusing. But we'll make mm. this one a little bit bigger and then they're like now nah, that's not working. We got to do arrows. So that's what I think. I think it was it's supposed to be grouping the first three panels together. So the panel two is not grouped with the last panel. It's, right. But it just doesn't do a good job because obviously it is. So Yeah, probably if they just had done away with the border on panel two and just had it sort of expand yeah. out further, then that might have yeah, I could see how that, that might have actually worked. that's that's probably exactly how I would have done it. I would have had a no panel on no border on panel two. And had a wider like gutter between panel one and three to separate those two. And then I think right. you probably would have naturally followed it the way you're supposed to. But I don't yeah. know if they could do like if they could really do no panel borders back then. I don't think the printing technology let them get up to the corners. I, the I, I mean well, I well, I'm not talking about the northeast direction. I'm talking yeah. about the southwest direction. Yeah. But yeah, no, I don't think they could go much further top and right at that point. But I was just thinking about bottom and left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but that's no. something. But, 
But yeah, we discussed this and it didn't bother me as much as it bothered Steve, but it's interesting. You as an actual Marvel artist are calling it atrocious. So, <laughs> so <I think> <laughs> uh, a, to be clear, the, the official word. Yeah, the panel border a little not being straight. It's just so ugly. It's, that's worse than the pa- than the arrows, I think. Although it's all, you know, I feel like whatever. <laughs> he's got that. Dead- We've already discussed his deadlines. He's like, he's like, eh, it doesn't work. Whatever. Right. Ari Simek, you figure it out, you know? <laughs> yes. Okay. This is another place, though, where when we've seen this a bit in the last couple months, where they tease a villain on the cover and at the beginning, like, oh, it's this new villain. And then they basically have one appearance in one panel somewhere in that issue. (laughs) Where's Ultimo? I was looking forward to Ultimo. Yeah, um, Ultimo basically looks like giant Dr. Manhattan from the Vietnam era of uh, Watchmen. But we don't get to see him enough here yet. But anyway, I thought perfectly fine issue of Iron Man. But let's go ahead and do Captain America, Living Legend of World War II, The Gladiator, The Girl, and The Glory. So, Steve, why don't you like John Romita's Batroc, which I love. I love John Romita's Batroc, but you were previewing last episode that you don't like it. Tell us more. I don't like it because it's bad. (laughs) okay okay. i know we're jumping forward but you're asking me to defend what i'm saying page six panel three is precisely what i was thinking of when i was saying that john ramita senior's Batroc was ridiculous (laughs) you know he is supposed to be basically a french kickboxer he looks like he's supposed to be like the kangaroo or something like that here it's just it does not work for me. It just seems you like think he's too stocky. Huh? He's bouncing. He's <laughs> okay. Well, here's the question: How seriously do you think we're supposed to take Batrock the Leaper? Yeah, I mean, he's leaping. He's the Leaper. I've, I've always name. assumed he was a bit of a gag character that somehow is successful. Like, like he's like, oh, <laughs> he's like he's a total joke, but. Turns out he's also a badass. Like he's not. <laughs> he's quite one of my favorite characters. Man. He's got so much personality. I love his leaping. I love everything about him. You know, last issue he was introduced by Kirby, and Kirby did a great job with him. Kirby is not involved in this issue at all. It's the he's art. I want to draw this guy. Jesse John Romita. And I think that Romita does a fantastic job with him. I just love Romita. I love Romita inking Romita. We have Romita doing his own inking here. So I think the art is better than it was on Daredevil. And One thing I did realize that I forgot is we had specified once more in the Iron Man story that the Mandarin uses karate, not kung fu. Right, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So anyway, I am not a big fan of how Batroc is handled visually in this issue. You are. We will not spend any more time on that. All right. Well, agree. I, I, well, so- one more thing about Batroc. I feel like <laughs> when he's done successfully, and I think Ramita nails it here, he looks like it should be embarrassing to lose to him. <laughs> and it looks like it would be there. Like, like he's just trying to humiliate Captain America. Like he kicks, like Captain America throws the shield at him. He kicks it away in like the most ridiculous, ostentatious, over the top. You just got beat by me with my, with my French accent and my purple tights and my leaping. So I'm enjoying this bad rock. Yes, I am enjoying it too. Batroc and Captain America realize they have to team up when they realize that Sharon Carter, Agent 13, not identified as Sharon Carter yet, not even as identified as Agent 13 yet, just a mysterious unnamed S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, is getting away with her Inferno 42. She still has yet to realize it is glowing so brightly it can be seen from four blocks away, but uh, she has it in her hand and has not noticed it is glowing until she passes out from the radioactivity. We don't cut through them. Are they called them yet? I guess they're being called them in S.H.I.E.L.D. I'm not sure they're being called them here yet. They really need to turn on the lights because it is very dark where they are and you can't make out anybody's face. It must be very confusing for them. They're saying, oh, we need to get Patrak to bring Inferno 42 here. We briefly get a no prize book panel, which was just, again, in the no prize book to talk about what exactly Sharon and Peggy's Carter relationship is. Patrak comes in. At some point, it's interesting. They do something here where... Captain America is able to do a switcheroo and give Batroc the wrong Inferno 42, which is glowing. So I guess Captain America had to quickly ask his prop department to make a glowing file that is not <laughs> the actual Inferno 42. I guess it just says they glow paint on it or something. Batroc then returns to the bad guys with Inferno 42. Captain America then follows and they're like, uh, Captain America, aren't you upset the bad guys got the this vial? And he's like, nope. 
And they're like, um, why not? Captain America defeats them, goes back to where Sharon Carter was. She says, it was worth it, Cap. We had time to switch the cylinders. They got the dummy. We've beaten them. Shield is one for now. And he says, yes, Shield is one, but I've lost. I've lost you. She is taken away. And he thinks about, gee, why does she look so much like this girl I knew in the war? And it is not at all made clear. And then the issue ends, but it does say next issue of the girl in Captain America's past, a bombshell, presumably a pun there. She is a bombshell and the story is a bombshell. That is the end of this issue. I think Ramia does a great job penciling and inking. I love watching Cap Battle Batroc. I love that we now have Sharon Carter and we have, I always like switcheroo stories where they pull off a switcheroo here, even though it's rather silly, he would have something to pull off the switcheroo with. I love this issue. I think it's great. What do you guys think? Yeah, you've already heard some of my complaints about the visual handling of the truck (laughs) in this issue myself. Other than that, if we bracket that for the moment, I really do like this issue. Yes, it's fun how they're moving this storyline around in both S.H.I.E.L.D. and Tales of Suspense. It's almost like Captain America is finally getting his dream that he had for several months there where he could work with Nick Fury, you know, as a spy. But (laughs) they're sort of working obliquely with each other. And yes, I mean, I love the characterization of Batroc. He is always fun. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you said, the Carter sisters slash aunt and niece slash great aunt and great niece slash grandparent and whatever they keep on retconning the thing to over the years is is a good addition because Captain America has just been spending too much time being mopey about his past and they need to find something else to do with him and this is going to give them something to do. Yeah. Yes. That's a good way of putting it. Some connection to his past that's not just him moping about it. I think this is a great issue. It's mostly battle scene between Cap and Batroc and it's a great fight. It's powerful. It's dynamic. Uh, A lot of cool things happen in it. I totally dig it. And it's also, it's fun to see. I've never read these early issues where with Sharon Carter to see where she came from and how she fits into like Cap's life and how we kind of learn who she is. Like that's, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. When you read this comic, did you know this was Sharon Carter? I mean, even though she's not named, I mean, I guess she's like a blonde spy. I assumed Yeah. If it wasn't her, it was someone who's essentially her. Yep. Okay. So uh, one last one to go here. Was Avengers my turn? Yes. Avengers is your turn. Right. Okay. Well, goody, goody for me because this is uh, (laughs) a, yeah. We always end with the Avengers and it's almost always one of the most disappointing (laughs) issues of the month. (laughs) Four Against the Flood Tide. Uh, Mad mixed up story by Stan Lee icky, insane illustrations by Don Heck. I don't think you're going to get any arguments from Matt about that description. Daffy, dizzy delineation by Frankie Ray, Frank Giacoya. Looney, lampoony lettering by Artie Simek. Stan has a whole wrap-up of what has happened in the last issue down at the bottom, acknowledges that there's a ton of stuff going on. I'll just try to catch us up as we go. The Avengers had just put in a new secure message system. So if somebody comes in and they've got a message to give them, it will be secret because, of course, no one ever seems to lock the doors on Avengers Mansion. Just anyone apparently can just walk on in here, as Hawkeye well knows, because that's how he joined the Avengers in the first place. So it's a good thing to have this security measure. But Hawkeye couldn't remember the password, which is apparently just 1313. How he couldn't remember that, I don't know. (laughs) Spending, Spending way too much time at that nightclub with the showgirls. And it turned out that the villain we saw in the background last issue is the Beatle? Like... (laughs) (laughs) And so I love how the Beatle then attacks Hawkeye and Hawkeye. They've made it clear that they don't have the Avengers files yet, so the Avengers never know who anybody is. And Hawkeye's like... Uh, I can't figure out who this guy is. And he says, those suction-tipped fingers of his are worth a regiment. They can stretch out and grab most anything. I wish he had then said, oh, he must be the beetle. That's what beetles do. Beetles have giant suction-tipped fingers, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what they do. <laughs> and it's like, this guy is the least beetle-esque villain in perhaps the history of Marvel Comics. And uh, <laughs> this would have been a good time to point that out. Yes. Uh, Also, I will point out, Riley, one thing that we have learned in going through all of these issues is that the Beatles' wings are made of solid steel. (laughs) 
that allow him to fly. Interesting. The aerodynamic, yeah. Well, steel is notoriously light. Just you can pick up a big block of steel with no problem (laughs) whatsoever. And that he's got just some kind of like super strength that's like twice the strength of a human being. So he's like, now I can flap my steel wings and fly. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he's ridiculous. So Hawkeye is able to get the message, but he thought he had defeated the beetle, but the beetle was still doing a thing. So he ties up the beetle and then is like, okay, I need to go and help the rest of the Avengers leaves the beetle tied up in Avengers Mansion like, okay, that's it. No more problems there. We get to Atuma's ship where the Avengers are in there. Uh, They've gone back and forth on okay, the ship was filled with humid air so that Atlanteans could breathe, even though they're usually in water, but it's so humid that humans can't breathe in there. (laughs) But then they had the whole fight. And everyone on the ship was like, yeah, but you beat them and they could barely breathe. So he's like, okay, give them oxygen helmets and then I'll beat them again. And then the Scarlet Witch broke open a window. So now it's flooding back up with water again. It's... It's a mess. We cut to Hawkeye apparently has to borrow a so-called aero sub, like a flying submarine from the Fantastic Four to go fly out here. And we see a lot of Hawkeye flying high tech vehicles. And I want to know where he got his pilot's license. It just does not seem credible to me. Yeah, somehow Quicksilver gets ejected from the sub and then gets picked up by Hawkeye and his sub. So now it's the two of them and it's a buddy cop movie uh, going through the ocean trying to rescue the rest of the Avengers. Uh, There's a cool scene with a giant evil octopus that is able to help them get by some of Atuma's forces. And Atuma, like, once again, you know, has them, oh, now they're tied up and the Avengers are tied up with their oxygen helmets back on. And now I'm going to talk about how I've defeated you again. And it's just... How many times were you going to go through this? Atuma is bragging about what he's doing, about making the tides rise to destroy the Earth. Captain America is taunting him into this, thinking that'll give him some advantage somehow. Not exactly sure how. Um, Then Hawkeye and Quicksilver ram their way into Atuma's submarine with their Fantastic Four submarine. (laughs) Hawkeye's like, but if you flood the place, what'll happen to Captain America and Wanda? And he's like, I didn't think of that. <laughs> uh, I guess we're in a hurry then. <laughs> let's let's go do this. Yeah, there's more fight scene, and you know some of it's fun, but Don Heck fight scenes are never, at least not since the first couple of years of Iron Man and some of his giant man and wasp stories have his fight scenes been of that much interest here. Right. Riley, where do you come down on Don Heck? I've never heard so much shade thrown at Don Heck before. I mean, I I think his stuff looks good. I never really had a problem with it. What's uh... so his, his rep is terrible, and I oh, really? am actually one of the people who will defend Don Heck for the most part, particularly when we were reading through years 62, 63, 64, and he was the regular artist on Iron Man for the most part, and then also would come in and do some guest issues here and there for Giant Man and the Wasp. And I found his art in that period really just charming. Yeah. It was a nice palate cleanser after a whole month of Jack Kirby and Dick Ayers to then have this completely different sort of like magazine illustration style of art that was coming in. Unfortunately, as time goes on, they stop having an ink himself. They're giving him inkers that do not suit him. Mm. And they put him Mm. on Avengers as this team superhero book, which really just does not work for his style either of art or storytelling he ends up stuck on avengers and other things like this for years which are not suited to him and it ended up getting him a really terrible reputation which i think is mostly unearned i mean we've looked at a lot of comics tonight and i mean it's not anywhere near the weakest art i don't think so i'm really shocked to hear you know like it's average is better than average i think this stuff's good Okay. Yeah. Now I've seen some of his earlier stuff. I guess maybe that was just him inking himself. There was definitely more to it. You know, this looks mm-hmm. a little slicker, and I think you lose some of that. Although I kind of just like 
art that's a little bit gritty. Yeah. This particular issue is not the best Don Heck art I've ever seen, but I, you know, have no problem with it at all. <laughs> well, let me, let me right. go ahead and defend. I generally find this book pretty dreadful month in and month out. I really like the sequence on pages 9, 10, 11, and 12, where you have Quicksilver and Hawkeye in a little submarine going through a submarine chase scene and getting tracked by these things that are shooting missiles yeah. at them and then luring them into the path of a giant octopus, which I think Heck has a fun time drawing. Yeah, the octopus can pop. And then eventually getting loose and smashing into a Tuma ship. This is one of my favorite sequences in Adventures in months. <laughs> I really like that sequence. I'll grant you that. That is, I mean, Riley can probably uh, speak to this more than I can, but that looks like it would not be an easy visual storytelling assignment to have that whole hide and seek, you know, reversals and, you know, how do we get out of this sort of stuff with the submarines and be clear which submarine is which and what they're doing and how they're maneuvering. Yes, you're right. That was pulled off quite well. Yeah, it is clever looking at it now, you know, a little bit more analytically. It's like how he was able to make sure that the submarines all had different shapes so you can follow each of them and, yeah. you know, make it all work. But yeah, it's you know, well done. So with the whole Don Heck thing, I'm actually usually quite defensive about Don Heck stuff. I've enjoyed his work so much in this early Marvel stuff that I went and bought his art book. Or it's not an art book, but a retrospective book called Don Heck, A Work of Art. Uh-huh. Yeah, Matt was shocked and horrified that I had done what, so. okay. what, what is it that people don't like about his work? Uh, just scratchy and often the people don't look like their feet touch the ground women's waists are way too tiny the evil faces i don't like the way he draws it to his face this is a better than average issue for him who's inker on this one is frank jacoya yeah frank jacoya i generally like as a pencil anchor when he gets a rare chance to pencil the avengers he does a great undersea craft storyline when they fight the sons of the serpent i don't know man this is not a particularly bad issue, but uh, eventually Heck will leave this book and John Buscema will take it over and I'll love it so much more. Yeah, and I think that's part of it, too, is that Don Heck was the penciler on this throughout the Caps Cookie Quartet period, which really yeah. is one of the weakest lineups, both physically and storytelling wise. Yeah, it's uh, definitely one of the least interesting Avengers lineups. Right. So I think that that definitely works against his reputation, too. If you find especially his Marvel superhero work from about 62 to 64, I love that stuff. I, he, I really do. He did the early Ant-Man stuff, right? He did yeah. some of it. Yeah. yeah I remember uh, basically really after that. the initial burst of Kirby utter insanity yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at the beginning of that thing, then, yeah, Don Heck took it for a little while. And I yeah. really especially like with him and Jan. The way he would illustrate them as a young couple out on the town. Yeah, that's the stuff I was stuff. Of. Those are fun pages. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that stuff. At this point, this is just really not what he was suited to, but this is what they kept giving him. And yeah, this is a better issue than we've been seeing from him lately. And okay. it really also does depend on the inker that they give him. And they're often not giving him inkers that really work well with him. Every now and then they do. This one works uh, when he had John Romita ink him, it worked. And he also did a fill-in issue on the X-Men in the middle of Neil Adams' run. Is that, yes, is he that did. him? When yeah. Sunfire first was up? Yeah, that was, that was really good, too. I mean, it's hard yeah. to... He was imitating Adams, and that was shocking and weird. Yeah. But he did a shockingly good job, I think, yeah. That fill-in so, issue he did in the middle I don't of Maybe run. I've only read his better stuff, I guess, that... Uh, you know, well, him, you know, uh, no, once again, I'm not going to try to talk you into, yeah. hey, you should be more disparaging <laughs> well, of I mean, Don Heck. Well, well, I'm just curious because it's like, obviously, there's some strong opinions here. And I'm just like, I don't, you know, I could see you being lukewarm. Like, yeah, whatever. You know, he draws similar to Bashima, but not nearly as dynamic or detailed. So I could see that being a poor comparison. But yeah. it's like, <laughs> at the very least, it's like decent. Well, like, wasn't there some when the guys who would later leave for Image were the hot stuff at Marvel? And there was some interview somewhere with, I think it was Jim Lee. And he and the interviewer were talking about how terrible Don Heck's art was. Oh, and really? like Jim Lee, like referring to him as like the worst comic book artist ever or something Whoa, like that. Okay. And it's well, like, maybe that painted the water. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's just like, um, 
Don Heck is still alive, people. <laughs> like, this is not okay. Like this yeah. is a human being. <laughs> let's 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 have a little respect for this guy. Yeah. And uh, maybe it was in our generation a little bit where it was like the older folks had more of a hate on for Don Heck, and we would just be hearing about it. And it sounds like I said, you know, you came along about ten years after us, so it could be yeah. by that point there wasn't really much of that going on anymore. Yeah, I guess not. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, but. I, I was surprised and delighted when I saw his early work uh, when we were yeah. going through here, and I was not expecting it. But yeah, by this point, I'm less enamored of his stuff. But yeah, mm-hmm. this is a better issue. All right. All right. Okay, guys. We have had another fantastic four issues. We have had one of the all-time great Marvel comics. I'm so glad, Riley, you could come on to help us discuss it and yeah, whether or not Silver Surfer is cool. <laughs> anything else you want to say riley as our guest today just thanks for having me on and if your listeners are looking for another podcast you don't mind me plugging the hypothetical island please plug away check out my podcast hypothetical island uh, it's me and my buddy george o'connor who's another comic book creator of the graphic novel series the olympians and we have a lot of great artists writers uh, animators toy designers and just have fun very stupid conversations. It's it's a little different than like the usual comic book interview podcast because we have our uh, trademark hypothetical island situation where we take people to strange worlds that they've never been on and hope to never go to again, I'm sure. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a lot of fun. I, I have listened to it and it's great just giving people the whole, uh, okay, here, you have to choose between this and this. What yep. would it be and why? <laughs> so, that, so it's fun. Come check it out. Um, And also on the stands coming up soon, I've got a new series that I'm working on called Forgotten Runes Wizards Cult. And it's about wizards and magic and that type of thing. It's going to have a lot of that. And I've got Thunder Guardian in the uh, newspaper, A Kid and a Comic. That's what the newspaper is called. And it's the paper is all comics pages. There's some really great talent on there. And I do a comic strip with my second grade uh, son, Will. He tells me the story and I draw it and it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. What a wonderful experience to get to have in the comics world. That's great that you're able to do that. That's also so exciting. I'm so glad you got a chance to plug some stuff. That sounds like great stuff. I would love to check it out myself. Cool. Yeah. All right. We'd be happy to have you back anytime. Yeah, absolutely. I will say, I have no idea which issues you didn't read. So, you know, whatever it is, you pulled it off well. So, <laughs> you know, so if, if you want to pull the whole book report for the book you didn't read again yeah. later, uh, you pulled it off this time fantastically. Read back to the books and you're fine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody out there in podcast land as well. You know, as always, please rate and review us on the podcatcher of your choice. We always appreciate that. And yeah, it's a weird world out there, folks. I hope that, as always, you stay safe out there. All right. Goodbye. Thanks so much for coming out. Riley, thanks so much for being our special guest. We will see you hopefully at some point in the future. And everybody at home in podcast land, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marble Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.